Good morning, Lakeside. Uh, take your Bibles, if you don't already have them open, and open them to John chapter 16. Uh, Doug uh, read the verses 25 through 33 that we'll be covering uh, this morning. What would you say, and to whom would you say it, if you knew you had a few hours to live? So, so you know you have a few hours to live, and you were able to get the people that you wanted to be with you in those hours, few hours, who, who would you gather, and what would you want to say to them? Because that's exactly what's happening in John 16. At the end of this conversation, right before he goes to the cross, uh, Judas is gone. He, he's already gotten paid off by the end of John 16. He's, they're gathering up the Roman soldiers. Maybe, maybe they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that Jesus is going to get there. And it's him and the original 11. Uh, it's, they're, they're back together again. And he's going to speak to them. He has been speaking to them. And in verse 25 to 33, it's a culmination of the last things that he's going to say to them. In John 17, he's going to kind of just separate a little bit. He's going to pray to the Father. It's a beautiful prayer. We'll look at it over the next couple of weeks. In John chapter 18, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. And literally all hell breaks loose. So this morning, we look at the last words that he speaks in his farewell address uh, to his disciples. Now, the last half of John's gospel, starting at John chapter 12, there's 21 chapters, the last half of his gospel covers the last week of Christ's life. Uh, so, so very important to God, obviously, to capture this. And uh, through Pastor Joel uh, on uh, New Year's Day and then Pastor Trevor last week, we've been covering these last words, uh, basically, in John 15 and 16. And uh, each one of those, Pastor Joel and Pastor Trevor, have kind of set it in the context of what's going on in Jesus's life. Uh, but I, I just want to do a quick rundown of the last week here. So you know exactly where this is taking place, and I pray that God will, God will use this. So on Sunday, uh, we call Palm Sunday, uh, uh, the, in John chapter 12, you have the triumphal entry. Everybody's yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and he's on a tear, and he's going to cleanse the temple, and he's going to overturn the tables. And he has a goal in mind, yes, to cleanse the temp temple, to let him know that uh, he's made it a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer. But the ultimate eternal goal is to move the Pharisees and the Jews to such an outrage at Jesus that in a couple of days, they have no choice but to crucify him. They're just going to bubble up. So, so he's pushing their buttons. Yes, he's doing legitimate things. But he's in control of himself going to the cross. And then on Tuesday, 
Uh, it's recorded in Matthew 23 that Jesus shares these seven woes. He gets the Pharisees and he speaks directly to them. And, and when he gets done speaking to them, now they are, they're like, if they could just grab him right now, they would just, they, they would stone him to death right then. But he's destined for crucifixion. And so he pronounces seven woes in Matthew uh, chapter 23. And he says a couple of things like this. Again, he's agitating them so that they'll put him on the cross. All part of God's plan. He calls them hypocrites over and over and over again. He calls them blind guides. He, he says right to their face, knowing what is going to happen because of his words. He says, you're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. It infuriated them, which is exactly, he spoke truth, but it's going to put him on the cross. Wednesday comes, and they can't handle it anymore. Jesus has got to go. They've been talking about it for a long time. They've made a couple of attempts that have just got, well, not this time. The hour has come uh, for Christ. And then on Wednesday, the gospel accounts talk about the Sanhedrin coming together to plot. How are we going to actually do this? It's going to happen. We can't take this any longer. And then on Thursday, where we find ourselves in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, you have the upper room where Jesus goes. In John 13, he's going to wash the disciples' feet. Uh, he's going to start this farewell discourse, this final conversation He's going to kind of lay out uh, the, the, the plan and what's happened. These are kind of final orders to the disciples. I think it's beautiful that the gospels say, say that uh, at the instigation of Jesus, they sang a hymn together. How precious. And then they departed for Gethsemane. So this conversation starts in chapter 13, and it's going to end today in John chapter 16. So if you, if you read it through, you had the conversation. Uh, about in the middle, Jesus says, let's arise from the upper room. So they're already walking to Gethsemane when he says these words. And they're going to be hard words, but they're going to be beautiful words. And in my mind, it doesn't say it in Scripture, and so this is sanctified imagination. As they're walking, I've, I've been there. You, you go down from the temple, you walk down the Kidron Valley, and then you go up the slope of the Mount of Olives, and Gethsemane's right there. So they're walking down. They're, 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 ab they're above the, the Kidron Valley, and they can see the Garden of Gethsemane other than it's nighttime. In my mind, Judas has already done his things, and the torches are off to the right, and they're walking to Gethsemane. Jesus is not even there yet. And he has these beautiful words found in John 16 as, as he's going to eventually in John 17 go to prayer and then right into the garden of Gethsemane. Well, then we know Friday is uh, he gets, he's betrayed uh, this night or early in the morning Friday. He's arrested. He's denied. Uh, he's mocked. The, the disciples have fled uh, Judas has done his thing, he's tried, he's crucified, and he's buried. Saturday, the Gospels are silent. You got the Savior of the world, you got the Creator of the world lying in a grave. 
Talk about a somber moment in the history of mankind. The only thing that's really mentioned about Saturday is, is that they realize that they better put a guard at the tomb because he did say that he was going to rise in three days and they didn't want anybody stealing the body and so the disciples could make up this fairy tale about the resurrection. So they guard the tomb. Fools. Fools. And then on Sunday, praise the Lord, it's resurrection. Amen? And as the song says, it was Friday, but Sunday's coming. It was Friday, but Sunday's coming. So in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, we're at the very end of his farewell discourse. It's one conversation. It's a final briefing. He tells them in this conversation that he's going to be leaving them. They're beside themselves. They're troubled in their heart. You told us to follow you. We've, we've left our families. We've left our jobs. We've been mocked by any, everybody, our own families. What do you mean you're leaving? But when Jesus said he's leaving them, he didn't say he was abandoning them. That's what they couldn't get. And so in our conversation in 14, 15, and 16, he says two things. I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit, and he's going to dwell in you. You'll never be alone. My spirit, my presence will be with you. And he says the famous words in John chapter 14, I am going, but I'm going to go and prepare a place. And what's he going to do? I'm going to come back and get you. So I'm leaving, but I'm not abandoning you. He tells him in this conversation, the world's going to hate you because they hated me. And the disciples have no idea what that means. Within 24 hours, they're going to get a big, big taste of it. Because they're going to see him hanging on the cross. And they're going to, they're going to flee. Matthew 26 and like verse 56 said that the, all the disciples fled like cockroaches when the light came on. They were gone. The world's going to hate you. Because it hated me. As Pastor Trevor preached last week, eventually your sorrow will be turned to joy. I just want us to spend a moment on this verse, the last verse of the conversation, and then basically this ends his time with his special 11, and he's going to pray then in John 17 to the Father. The Holy Spirit records it, gives it to John, so, but I don't think the disciples are there, and then it's into Gethsemane and being arrested. Let's read this together. Read it with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Now, if you don't get anything else from this morning, I just want you to keep your eyes on this verse. All of his life, 33 years, for Jesus, it's always been about everybody else. Uh, at the beginning of this conversation, maybe an hour or so before he said these words, he had just got down on his knees and he washed their feet. Stinky, ugly feet. You know, back in a church that I used to pastor, um, we decided to do a foot washing. 
And I should have been more selective on the people that were chosen to wash the feet because I was the one washing them. One guy was a diabetic, bad. And I, I, serious, I'm asking the Lord to help me not kind of gurgitate. Jesus washed their feet. Here's what I want you to see. He's going to the cross. His disciples are going to flee. Judas is already doing his dastardly deed. He's told Peter, you're going to deny me. Everybody's going to forsake him. If there was ever a moment, the hour before he goes to the cross, if there was ever a moment, it should be about him. Now's the time. But instead of it being about him, he makes it about us. And I want you to get that thought in your brain. When it should be about him, he is constantly making it about us. Now, if you look at verse 32, it seems kind of a hard thing he's going to say here. He says in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered, each to his own. And notice this hard saying, And you'll leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father for the Father is with me. He says, you're going to scatter. You're going to go to your own home. Jesus himself said, I don't have a home. They're, they're going to, you're going to leave me alone. When it should have been about him, he makes it about us. And I just want you to see, I don't think he's beating the disciples up here. That's not the tenor of what he's doing here. I think he's bolstering them up by saying, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to call the shot right now. In just a few moments, I'm going to be left alone. I'm going to be, I'm going to be arrested. You're going to flee. Peter, you're going to deny him. No, I won't. Yes, you will. He's trying to bolster them to say, well, wait, Jesus called this out. He wasn't surprised by this. So I don't think he's trying to beat them up. I think he's trying to bolster them up. What Jesus has to do, Scripture says over and over again, he has to do alone. God the Father through the Holy Spirit wants us to see that at this moment, he's going to be all alone from here on out. Now, I think that I could say, rightfully so, that Jesus was the loneliest man who ever lived. Now, let us think about it with me. He knew the pain of unreciprocated love. I'm not asking for an amen there, but some of you have known the pain of unreciprocated love. You knew the pain of being misunderstood, misrepresented. You know, the pain of, of uh, speaking truth into somebody's life and they reject it. You know, the acute uh, pain of abandonment. He did. But I want you to notice something in case you say, well, he, he wasn't really alone. Look what he says. So you'll be scattered each to his own home. We'll leave uh, me alone at the end of verse. Three, but yet I'm not alone from the father's with me. So, Dave, how lonely could he be? Well, in about 10, 12 hours, he's going to cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Right here, he still has some fellowship with the Father, but because of you and because of me, that ends in a couple of hours. When the storm burst on the scene, there was shelter for everyone but Jesus. What he had to do, he had to do alone. And yet one of the most precious promises the Lord ever uttered, he uttered out of complete selflessness in John chapter 16 and verse 33. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Take heart, take courage, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now let me spend a few moments on saying then, well, how then do we, because the promise is for us, how do we take heart in the midst of a trial? How do we do that? How do we, how do we not get overwhelmed by the wave? How do we let, not let the valley experience bury us when the gloom and doom like come on us? How do I, you know, get the shield out and, and make it through and actually be of good cheer? I, I didn't think it would uh, look good on the live stream, but on, uh, on New Year's Eve, I had a, a, a bottle of the sparkling grape juice, you know, the kind that looks like a bottle of champagne, but it's really, really not, you know, that's the kind I, that's the kind I drink these days. And uh, I was going to put it up here and say, look, here's what he's saying. Here's his last words to his disciples. Cheers. Be of good cheer, cheer up. Come on, let's all click our wine glasses here. He's going to the cross. How could he say that? I have an outline with three thoughts. And I'm going to let you know up front that I stole the outline. <laughs> and I don't know the last person's name. I know the first person's. And at the end of... Going through the outline, I'm going to give you where I stole it from. Make sure that you don't let me close in prayer without telling you where the outline came from, okay? I couldn't improve on the outline. So here it is. How to take heart in the midst of trial. Number one, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, take heart. Uh, some versions have take courage. The, new, uh, the King James Version says, be of good cheer. It's a command from Jesus. The command is given a half a dozen times throughout Scripture. There's only one person who ever gives this command in Scripture. You'll find it a half dozen or uh, uh, so times. And it's the only one qualified to tell you to take heart in the midst of tribulation, and that guy's name is Jesus. He's the only one recorded in Scripture to tell us to take heart in the midst of tribulation. Now, this isn't a pep talk. We're not getting the basketball team and football team together, and it's like, I know there are giants out there, and I know we're 30-point underdogs, and like, just come on, let's get her going. No, 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 no. This is an absolute divine promise. Take heart. In the world you have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. Yes, yes, yes. Now the word overcome the world or overcame the world. The word overcame is literally the word for conquer 
It's the word for victor. I have brought victory into the world. Now we should say, say what? I have overcome the world? You're telling me you've overcome the world and you're telling me that they're going to arrest you and they're going to beat you and they're going to try you and they're going to mock you and you're going to be naked and you're going to be on the cross? Strange way to overcome the world because they don't understand that the cross is the victory. You see, the cross, the death, burial, resurrection, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the payment for your sins and for mine, the fact that he went to the cross. Now listen to what Paul wrote about this. For the word of the cross is foolish to us to those who are perishing. That's not the victory. He got smoked. If he was God, how could he be God and that happen? Paul said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Do you know? It's the power of God. Paul wrote later, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Write these, uh, just this reference down and look it up later. Uh, By the way, John is the only writer in Scripture to use this word. He uses it in the gospel and then in his epistles. uh, And then he uses it in the book of Revelation that he wrote. So 20-some times it's used. It's always John using it. But take to heart this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So if you're a follower of God, if you're a child of God, if you're, if you're devoted, you've given your life to Christ, you've had your sins forgiven, you're, you're in his family, everyone, you, you've overcome the world already. It doesn't seem like it on this earth, and this is the victory. Same word there, that has overcome the world. Your faith, your trust in what Christ has done. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is the victory. We should sing the hymn just right off. We should, I can't. He says, in me, you're going to have peace. Do a Bible study sometime this week. Look up the phrase, in me or in Christ. Have a column. And then look up the phrase, in the world. Put them side by side. John 14 and verse 27, which, which he, he said earlier uh, in this uh, conversation, maybe a half hour earlier as he's walking with the disciples, peace I leave you. I highlighted the words, my peace I give you. The peace that he had when he was sleeping at the bottom of the ship when it looked like the ship was going to go down. The one who could take a nap when it seemed like everything. I want that peace, Amen. I want the peace that he had. I want the composure that he had when he walked to the cross. I want to have the peace that he had when he was hanging on the cross and he said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. I want the peace and my wits when life comes crashing down. He says, my peace I give you. He's saying it's available to you. It's not as the world gives. There's not peace in that. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says it again. Neither let them be afraid. Basically what he's saying for us, it's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of Christ that brings peace. It's a state of inner tranquility as opposed to the outer turmoil that's all around you. 
It's found in Christ. That's why we're always asking, a Sunday should not go by where we don't say, are you in Christ? Have you given him your sin? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you have eternal life? Are you in Christ? Are you in the family of God through faith and believing? Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It comes with a relationship. We're not alone in this world because Jesus took the forsaking for us. Number two, be patient in tribulation. He says, in the world you'll have tribulation. The word tribulation is a very general term. It's not just you're going to get stoned, you're going to get thrown in jail, your head's going to get lopped off. It was used widely in society. The word literally in the original language means to be pressed together, to be squeezed, to be distressed. In the world, you'll have tribulation. It's the general term for uh, distress of any kind, like temptations or trials or troubles. So when he said, in the world, you'll have tribulation, let let me just give you a couple categories of how this could happen. The tribulation he's talking about, number one, could be afflictions that come upon us because we're humans living with other humans. Pastors often say, ah, it's a really great job if it wasn't for the people. I don't say that. I tell them, you're wrong. Come to Lakeside. It's affliction that comes just from being human. Tell me if this isn't true. It's possible to be greatly loved by God and be poor. The widow with two mites. It's possible to be greatly loved by God and be sick unto death. Lazarus. It's possible to be greatly loved by God and humanly forsaken and abandoned. Take Paul and take Jesus. It could be, you could be loved by God and go through the death of a loved one, a broken relationship, a job loss, a a wayward children. It's tribulation comes upon us because we're part of humanity in this sin-cursed world. The second type of affliction come upon us because of poor and sinful choices we make. Paul said in Romans 7, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And so I see that there's a law inside of me, and it's called sin nature. And then he goes on at the end of that bad chapter division, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, but there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we make sinful choices, we make bad uh, choices, we make poor choices, and it brings a tribulation upon us. We can't point the finger at other people. Sometimes we need to go to a counselor and a pastor and have them tell the truth. Well, this has come upon you because of you. The third type of affliction, which I think he's going to, the disciples are going to experience, is not just from being a human, living in a human, it's not for a poor, sinful choice. It's the afflictions that come upon us because of being a follower of Christ. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul never 
automatically thought that because somebody says a Christian that they have a desire to live for Christ. They'd be Christian in name only. But all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So there's a whole level of tribulation that comes when you're living for Christ. Pastor Joel mentioned on New Year's Day that, that we flow against the culture, uh, that there should be some friction in our life. He, he, had the, he had the piece of artwork from The Chosen where, where the, the world, all the fish in the world are going this way. And then all of a sudden, when you become a follower of Christ, you're going that way. And there's a friction created. It was this kind of tribulation that the disciples were going to experience. They were going to be misrepresented. They were going to be misunderstood. They were going to be marginalized. And when I look at my own life, I think, well, yeah, misrepresented, misunderstood, marginalized. The natural world hates righteousness, and often it starts with a family, your own family. Following Jesus is not always, is, is always right, but it's not, it's rarely easy. James, if you haven't watched The Chosen, uh, go to season three and watch the depiction of how they have the character for James. But James wrote about this in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast, steadfastness, have its perfect effect. They may be perfect, lacking in nothing. Patient in tribulation. Psalm 30 and verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Praise God. Have you experienced that? Now, third and last, then I have two real-life stories I want to share as we close. To, to get the victory, to be an overcomer, to be able to make it through the trial or the valley experience, you must be constant in prayer. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. In that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father invites, uh, Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. The Father is mentioned six times in our nine verses this morning. Here's where Jesus gives us permission to go straight to the Father and he makes a point to say, you don't need to come to me. And I don't need to twist the father's arm. That's what he's saying. I don't need to pressure the father into be gracious to you. And in verse 27, he says, because you've loved me. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a lover of Christ. And you believe that I've come from the father. If you've loved me and you've trusted in me and my finished work on the cross then you're loved by the Father. You have direct access to the Father. When Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple ripped from the top to the bottom. The Holy of Holies was, was ripped, was wide open. It was basically God saying, come on in. I want you to see this, and I pray that this will sh help shape our prayer life so that we get the victory in the valley. He says in verse 26, in my name. What does he actually mean by in my name? Well, it's a very important phrase, and he mentions it numerous times in this conversation. Let me, 
Have you turned back, if you have your Bible or your device, to chapter 14 and verses 13 and 14? Whatever you ask in my name, this, will I, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here he says it again. He uses the phrase, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Turn to chapter 15 and verse 16. Same conversation. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Uh, chapter 16 and verse 23. Pastor Trevor covered. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then in verse 26 again, in that day you will ask in my name. We should ask ourselves, well, what is he saying to pray in my name? Seems like an important principle of prayer if I'm going to make it through the valley. And, and we could say and be right in saying we're praying based on all that Christ has done, all he's promised to do. And all he desires. That's what it means to pray in his name. He's the victory. Uh, he's, the, he's the bridge between me and the Father. I pray in his name. But literally, this is what it means. Perk up right here. Literally, Jesus is saying, pray what I would pray. When you're in the valley, you pray what I would pray. Pray what I would want for you. Pray like this. Father, is it possible that this cup could pass from me? He doesn't hear anything. It would have probably been better if we would have had recorded words, no, son. He gets nothing. So what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So in the valley, we're praying constantly in his name, what he would pray. So let's make it really practical. When reviewing your past week's prayer requests, or take your past month's prayer requests, how many of them could be labeled... Two columns, my comfort, his mission. Take your last month's prayer request. How many of them would fall under the my comfort, his mission? He's saying in the valley, you pray in his name what he would pray, as he would pray it, what he would want you to pray. And I'm like, forgive me, Father, because my prayers would be radically. Oh, by the way, this is the opposite of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Whoever came up with that nonsense, Satan, never read the Bible. Health, wealth, and prosperity books and preachers are a bunch of gobbledygook if you've lived life. 
He promises the peace that passes understanding in the midst of tribulation. Now, I told you that I stole the outline from a trusted author and an authority on the subject of taking heart in the midst of the tribulation. I don't know his last name, but his first name is Paul. And I stole the outline from Romans 12 and verse 12. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, don't have time this morning, and read what he endured for the cause of Christ. And here's what he said on the other side. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think I'm going to do that. Amen? Yes. Now, my time's up, but I'm going to share two stories. And I want to encourage you with these two stories. They're exceptional. When I get done with the second story, I'm going to say, God is writing your story. So here's the first one. The military guy on the right is Jake DeShazer. He was a part of General Jimmy Doolittle's bombing raid over Japan in World War II. DeShazer's uh, plane crash landed. He was captured. He spent 40 months in prison. Uh, all but 184 days, that's about 80% of his time, all but 184 days were spent in solitary confinement. 80% of his time. During the dark days of his soul, uh, in the sovereignty of God, he gained access to a Bible. He read it. He gave his life to Christ. He, he made it through the war. He made it back to America. He informed his parents when he got back that he had become a follower of Christ and that his intention was to go back to Japan and share the good news of Christ with the Japanese. He wrote a gospel track telling of his conversion as a prisoner of war. One day, that track uh, was handed to a former Japanese war hero, the man on the other side. He read the track, and he bought a Bible, and he became a Christian, a follower of Christ, and eventually a Japanese evangelist. His life touched thousands. You know the name of that guy? Well, I'm going to pronounce it, but I, it's not going to be very good, so just forgive me right there. Matito Fuchida. 39-year-old Japanese pilot that led and commanded the surprise December 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. He went back and he won that man to the Lord. Second story. In 1874, this French steamer called the Villa de Havre was a, on a homeward voyage from America when a collision with a sailing vessel took place. The damage was considerable, and it sank quickly with the loss of nearly all who had been on board. One pass, passenger, Mrs. Horatio Spafford, the wife of a lawyer in Chicago, had been on board with her children, being informed that the ship was sinking. She knelt with her children and prayed that they might be saved. And if not, that they would die with honor in the center of God's will. When the ship sank, the children were lost. Mrs. Stafford was rescued by a sailor in the sovereignty of God rowing by. And 10 days later, when she reached shore, she sent her husband a message, saved alone. 
It was an unbearable blow to her husband. It was a sadness hardly comprehensible. Spafford wrote his testimony to God's sustaining grace. And we have it today. Here's what he wrote. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And you know what God wants for you and me in the muck of this life? He wants us to write a hymn. And for those of us who can't sing a lick and maybe aren't that great with words, he wants the hymn to be our life, a hymn back to him, praising God. It's not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of Christ that makes all the difference. Amen? I'm going to close in prayer, talk about the connection card, and then we're going to sing Mr. Spafford's song, It Is Well With My Soul. Father, we come to you. Father, I, I, I think about my own life. Certainly it hasn't been a bed of roses, but when I think about the church family here, what's taking place right now, talking to a young lady after the first service, Annie, who has gone through addiction, and, and yet you never let go of her. Lord, I think about your grace and your mercy. I think about all the false teaching out there about health and wealth and prosperity. And if you give your life to Christ, he'll, he'll give you a bank account and he'll take the cancer away and your children will suddenly become obedient. Your husband will love you like he's never loved you before. Yet, Lord, I, I cling to the words of your son in the world you will have tribulation. Amen. But be of good cheer. Take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. Father, your son is my overcomer. His goodness has followed me and chased me all the days of my life. One day, Lord, those who are followers of your son We'll get to see him face to face and it'll be worth it all. Lord, there's most likely a broken person here this morning or many and maybe nobody else knows what they're going through, yet you do. And You hold out your son hanging on the cross. Uh, forgive them, Father. They didn't know what they were doing. And all you have to do is open up your arms and receive the forgiveness that is found at the cross. Lord, would you do that in our midst? And then, Lord, I would just ask that with my life and our lives, uh, could our lives be a hymn written back to you of your grace and your mercy? In Christ's precious name, amen.